Welcome to Beyond the Pink Cloud, the podcast where we talk about moving forward in our lives through recovery and navigating the world with grace, ease, and humor. We've got tools and strategies from the experts to help you live with less stress and increased ease. Let's get into today's episode. Before we hop into today's episode, I really want to send out a heartfelt thanks to everyone listening and everyone who supports the podcast and hopefully get some benefit from all of the fantastic guests that agree to come on and speak with me. If you'd like more Beyond the Pink Cloud, please join our Facebook group. Beyond the Pink Cloud is the name of the group, a community for sober women, and the link to the group is in the show notes. Without further ado, let's start the episode. Good morning, and thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Beyond the Pink Cloud. This is your host, Dr. Alice Kirby, and with me today, I have Ms. Emmy Brunner. She is the CEO of the Recover Clinic. She's a psychotherapist specializing in women's issues and works with things such as trauma and eating disorders. Emmy, thank you so much for coming on today. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And so I know I mentioned that you're the CEO and you're also the founder of the Recover Clinic. Mm-hmm. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I first kind of qualified as a psychotherapist, I was seeing a lot of women in my practice. And so establishing the clinic was a little bit of a happy accident. It kind of grew out of a need rather than a big ambition of mine. I gradually started seeing more and more women with very similar issues. Um, And whatever it was that they were presenting with, whether it was eating disorder symptoms or anxiety symptoms or depression symptoms, the overriding kind of theme amongst everybody that I was seeing is that they all had unprocessed trauma. Um, And historically, they'd sought treatment that had really been very much focused on the symptoms of of that trauma as opposed to kind of dealing with that root cause. And so a lot of them felt as though they just needed to manage their eating disorders or manage their anxiety. And for me, it was a real kind of revolution, revolutionary way of thinking about, actually, if we start to process the trauma that these women are dealing with, then maybe these symptoms just won't be there anymore for them. And have you found that to be true in working with the I women? Too? really to be true, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really an, an empowering place for, for people to find themselves because so many of the women that I worked with just felt like they had problems. They were probably going to be messed up forever to a greater or lesser extent, or they'd had loads of failed treatment interventions. So lots of them had had multiple inpatient admissions or worked with loads of different therapists and had sort of moderate or, you know, mainly failed experiences of recovery. Um, None of it had been sustained or really that fulfilling Mm -hmm. I would say um they'd got to a place where they were able to sort of manage the symptoms of their illnesses with medication and and ongoing therapy work and I think by doing the trauma resolution work and and really building on forming relationships within the community of the clinic both with the clinical staff but also with one another they found a new level to their healing which they just weren't anticipating Mm. Um, and to be honest, early on, I wasn't necessarily anticipating either. I wasn't sure when we started doing this work, really what the the long-term outcome would be. Um, and what happened was that these women's lives really began to transform far more than finding a stable place in recovery. They were achieving things in their personal lives that they just simply hadn't thought were possible before. 
um, and getting to know themselves and forming intimate relationships with people in ways that they just hadn't experienced ever. That's wonderful. Wow. Like to see that complete transformation, not just healing from the trauma or from, you know, whatever thing it was that was holding them back, but to, to truly move forward in life. Yeah, absolutely. I think what so many people, and I think so many of us, and certainly I experienced this in, in early recovery myself was just this kind of persistent presence of a, of a negative internal voice. And for some people, when they go into treatment for mental, mental health problems, they're in a place of crisis. And really what they're motivated by is just getting to a place where they're feeling a little bit safer and a, a little bit better. And I think that kind of persistent, low-level critical voice is not always challenged. Um, and I think through the trauma work, what everybody became aware of was that this critical voice was really at the heart of everything. And it wasn't just impacting people around their, their mental health. It was undermining their choices. It was undermining their relationships. And as soon as they began to foster a more compassionate dialogue with themselves, then it changed everything. It didn't just change how they felt mentally. It changed everything that they were doing, the jobs they applied for, the relationships that they were building how they treated themselves in a very kind of casual day-to-day way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think by nurturing those little things, that's when the big stuff started to really shift. Yeah, I feel like when we when we have guidance, as you're suggesting that you, you do at your clinic, um, where we can like create those little building blocks on the small things, that's when mm-hmm. the big changes really do occur. Like a lot of times I think people want this lightning bolt moment or, yeah. you know, this big like, experience where now everything shifts, but I think it really is in laying the foundation and what can we do daily to start creating new habits um, so that we we do have these big changes, which it sounds like that's what your your patients and participants are experiencing with the work you're doing. I think sometimes as well, that that kind of critical voice can show up in quite covert ways. And I think that lightning bolt moment is a bit of a kind of covert way of that critical voice harming us actually because what it does and I and I see this a lot particularly coming into the new year people want to experience big change and Mm -hmm. I'm going to do this I'm going to do that and they set themselves up for these massive expectations which and they're inevitably going to be unable to sustain or achieve and it really then exacerbates the presence of this this critical voice um, and reinforces this very negative core belief system that somebody has And I think when people set themselves more manageable and more realistic goals, they're much more likely to meet them. And that's when I think that that ill part of us is really threatened, that when we start making those little victories, you know, Mm -hmm. that that lead us to big change. Absolutely. Uh, When you're working with core beliefs or for anybody listening who's maybe become aware that they have some core beliefs that are maybe a little bit Mm -hmm. on the negative side or are not helping them to create more of this transformative experience, what are some ways that you advise people to start, I guess, being aware of those kind of core beliefs that aren't really serving us and then as well as starting to change them using (laughs) those little ways so that we can start day by day like shifting the core beliefs that aren't serving yeah i think the first thing that i tell people to do is to just get curious about yourself and what's motivating your choices um and kind of use your past experiences and as an opportunity to just be a bit reflective 
Because I think keeping in mind that negative critical voice, what it does is that when we start to reflect on negative core beliefs and old choices and old behaviors, is that we start to get berated by that Mm -hmm. critical voice as well. So I think being mindful of that, mindful when that starts to happen, and mindful of ourselves falling back into those traps when they inevitably do happen. Um, And just being a little bit curious about what happened then, what can I learn from that, rather than kind of getting trapped into a sort of negative shame spiral, stepping back and and looking at your experiences more as an opportunity to learn something about yourself rather than anything else less productive, I guess. And I think the more we get curious about what's motivating our choices and experiences, the less we're likely to see them as good or bad. Mm -hmm. It's more about well, what, why did I make that choice? What is it that I believe about myself that caused me to do that? And I think what we can then see is what those core beliefs are and how many of them are serving us and how many of them we want to let go or to, to work on or to develop. And it becomes more of a kind of self-love project rather than looking at our behaviors in the past as either good or bad. I love the idea of a self-love project. It just sounds so much nicer than let me pick myself apart and see, you know, what are my negative core beliefs instead of like, yeah, yeah, I really love that concept. And for people who are undertaking this work and becoming curious, what are some of the tools that you recommend for your patients or for any of your Instagram followers? Um, Do you recommend things like journaling and uh, affirmations, things like that? Yeah, I mean, I again thinking about the individual. Um, I think so many of the so many of the time people will contact us and say, you know, I've read that journaling is really, really great, but I just really resent it. I really, really hate it. Or I'm trying to meditate, but I can't do it. And I'm like, well, what does work for you? Mm-hmm. Because actually, this whole recovery process is yours. And we're so caught into this world where we're comparing our experiences with with everybody else, and we're following somebody else's recovery journey like it's a script that we need to replicate and actually that's somebody else's experience somebody else's journey and I think when we treat ourselves with love and compassion and we get to know ourselves and think about what we enjoy and what we like then we're much more willing to be flexible about what works for us so if journaling isn't your thing stop doing it Mm-hmm. You know, and the amount of times people have said, I really hate meditating. <laughs> I love listening to music. I'm like, what do you think you're doing when you're listening to music? Mm-hmm. What do you think you're doing when you're hiking? You're probably putting yourself into a bit of a meditative state. You just haven't labeled it like that. And because you haven't labeled it like that, it doesn't feel laborious. It feels something joyful and casual to you. So build on that. And I think it's about focusing on what we want rather than what we don't want. And I think so many of us, particularly when we're in a, in a dark place, it's very easy to do, to focus on what hasn't gone right and to focus on what we don't want anymore. And actually, when we shift that energy in a different direction and focus on building on what we already have, we foster a sense of gratitude and thankfulness for, for our lives as they are even with all the hurt, even with all the pain. And suddenly those difficult and challenging, challenging experiences become things that we learn from and grow from rather than things that we want to ignore or avoid. And then everything changes. 
I think with the, the the presence of gratitude and being able to fully embody what it feels to be grateful and to generate more of that feeling just through practice. I mean, that's kind of a meditation in itself to spend time each day doing some of the gratitude practice. I've been using that a lot more personally and with some of the women that I work with. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's really a ripple effect that happens. And, you know, gratitude is I guess a buzzword or whatever. A lot of people talk about it, but I think yeah. when we really can get that embodiment of the gratitude happening, so we're really in this state of gratefulness, it does like start to shift our both our internal and our external reality a little bit. Yeah, completely. I completely agree. And I, but I'm so sympathetic to people when they are in a, a really dark place who are like, oh my. God, what are you talking about? I can't mm-hmm. feel grateful. Did you know that I've broken up with my partner? Did you know that I've lost my job? Did you know? And uh, again, the focus is on everything that we don't have. And it is really hard to kind of steer yourself in a different direction. But genuinely, I believe that when you're not doing that, you're really fighting against the tide rather than going with it. Um, and I think it does take practice. But once you get that flow going, it really does shift things. And you can find that actually nothing can change in your life, just your perspective. And just with that, you will feel better. And I think as soon as that little light, that chink of light comes in, it gives us a bit of permission to be hopeful. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we become hopeful, things again start to change in a way that we just can't anticipate. I love that. And I think that almost plays the role of the the lightning bolt that we talked about earlier, but it's very subtle just to have that little switch come on of maybe all of these things are falling apart, but here's what I am grateful for. Here's what I do have. And it, it does, it opens up this door to another world of, wow, my life really could look like this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think that lightning bolt is an amazing thing and I think it does happen, but it's kind of much more casual. You wake up and go, huh. Mm-hmm. Things are really wildly different. Oh my goodness, I couldn't imagine that I would be sat here doing this. And quite often that's, you know, in a really simple moment, like having breakfast with your family or spending time with a friend or enjoying your day in the most casual way. Mm -hmm. I remember being really overwhelmed once when I was cooking like a Sunday lunch for my family and some friends. And that was all I was doing. There was nothing amazing about it. I'd done it a hundred times before. But I just remember looking at the scene and feeling so profoundly grateful. And that was like a little lightning bolt for me. Yeah. Yeah. Those moments are precious when they come. Yeah. 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 I have a few sometimes like with um, hot showers. I'll be, I'll be taking a shower and really overcome with gratitude just for like hot water and an enclosed space. And I have this kind of a nice view of the mountains from my shower. Yeah. And it's that feeling of being overwhelmed. So I think for anybody listening, those little moments can play a big part in, in shift, shifting your world, you know, so pay attention to them. And I wanted to ask you about the role of affirmations. Uh, I saw that you have some information about this on your website and I'm kind of curious with when we're using affirmations, how do we, how do we make sure they're aligned with both our conscious and our subconscious patterning? So we're not telling ourselves things that maybe our subconscious can't actually take in and, and make true. Do you have any advice for people trying to use affirmations on ways that we can really take them in? Yeah, I, I think that for so many people, it goes, it goes again to what I was saying before about people setting themselves up for failure. I think this can really be true for affirmations. I think we'll try and say things to ourselves that, that are just so far removed from how we're feeling in that moment that they're impossible to grasp. 
So for example, somebody with really, really poor body image um, saying to themselves, I love my body. They're just not going to connect with that. It's not going to feel real for them. And they can say it over and over. And and I'm not saying that that's completely hopeless, but I think it's a tall order. And I think beginning with something more manageable, like I accept my body as it is, is a stepping stone toward something else. One of my favorite affirmations ever is I feel safe. Mm. Um, Just something really simple that grounds you and reminds you that actually you are capable of taking yourself into a safe space, whether that's internally or externally, and repeating that until it becomes your truth. And I think using affirmations as stepping stones toward what it is you're trying to achieve is the best way of getting there. It's like anything in life, you know, it's not trying to catapult yourself to something. It's just taking those small steps in the right direction. And there's real comfort in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, And I like the way that you looked at the affirmations like a stepping stone as well, where it doesn't have to be this, you know, I have a million dollars in the bank. Maybe it's, I'm good at managing my finances, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious too, with, with, um, with the trauma work that you do, are you pulling off of any specific type of trauma work like EMDR or anything like that? Or what's kind of the framework for the work you do? A lot of them, a lot of the clients that we're working with are really in a state of um, shock and, and distress when we first get to them. So anything like EMDR can be quite re-traumatizing for our clients at that point. They're, they're great tools, um, but they can be beneficial to clients much later on in their journey. What we're really focused on with the trauma work is getting people to feel safe. So people come in a very kind of hyper-aroused state mm-hmm. or completely depressed state. So we're trying to get them somewhere in that middle ground where they're able to start to get in relationship with us. For me, relationship is the key to healing Um, a relationship with yourself, relationship with people that you trust and whether you want to foster some sort of spiritual connection to yourself, if that's your your belief system, then I think that that's the key to your healing. I don't necessarily agree that people need to spend lots of time unpacking big traumas Mm -hmm. um, straight away. I think that can be super traumatic for people. Um, And I think it's one of the reasons that I'm really invested in long-term outpatient care rather than intensive inpatient care. I've seen a lot of people go into inpatient, kind of rush through big disclosures with therapists that they don't really know that they're going to not know for very long. And it'd be very re-traumatizing for people. I think slow and steady really wins the race when it comes to trauma. And, And really what you're focusing on is acknowledging that you've maybe been through something that's challenging. And if you can achieve that, I think that is such a a huge thing to be able to do. So many of the people that I work with minimize the experiences that they have. They blame themselves for the experiences that they have and are unable really on a very basic level to verbalize their own truth. Hmm. And because they can't do that, they deny that to themselves and deny all of their own basic needs. And soon as they start to own their own experience, even if they're not able to articulate the trauma and the events of those traumas, they're able to begin to acknowledge what their needs are as as human beings. And just in that, everything starts to heal. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, I like how you mentioned too, working with people to try to find more of like a baseline state. Um, yeah. And, 
I do some trauma work with the somatic experiencing techniques that I'm studying and using. And that's a big part of it. And when I talk about the work I do, I'll say that a lot. And I I don't know really if there's a big awareness around what that actually is of like what's trying to create some nervous system regulation and figure out like what, what is your actual baseline? And then, you know, how can we maintain an awareness of that baseline throughout our days really and and be able mm-hmm. not so much try to always stick to it but just to know what it is so that we can be more aware of when we're really far off or really yeah. deep below it i think so. that's lovely work it's it's you know it's very simple but it's very empowering for a person mm-hmm. particularly someone who's found themselves kind of flying off into fight flight or freeze you know, one of those reactions, teaching people to be able to regulate their own experience or see themselves coming, you know, to know when you're going into a place that's feeling challenging or particularly triggering for you and to be able to take control over what's happening. I think if you're able to master that, you you really do start to feel very much empowered by yourself and not so out of control with everything that's happening to you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do you work frequently with generational trauma at all? And I'm asking this question in um, in particular with like body dysmorphia type things. I had a, uh, a, I'll just give kind of a background on why I'm asking this because this came up last night. I have a women's group on Tuesday nights and we were talking a little bit about sort of issues with bodies and eating issues. And a couple of the women who were just beautifully fit and, and wonderful were talking about, no, I really feel like not so great about my body or I'll go into a spiral. And I, and just talking a little bit about what they grew up with and things that their mothers had told them. And, oh, you know, I was, my mom gave me diet pills when I was 13, or there was always commentary about like her body. And I observed her like coming out of the dressing room crying because things wouldn't fit. And, you know, so then I've had this up and down with my body my whole life. Do you work with mothers and daughters or generational trauma around body dysmorphia and issues like that? Yeah. A hundred, yeah. A hundred percent. I think, I think again, that comes back to, yeah, trauma trauma that's inherited and and I think that's either witnessing somebody experiencing trauma um as a young person learn coping strategies as well you know that learning from a mother that you turn to food and body image is a way of resolving negative feelings about yourself and sometimes I think I was working with a a, a woman recently who had real health anxiety and she just didn't understand where it came from. And it, and it came from her mom. Mm. Her mom had been the eldest of four children and had had to raise her siblings and had been terrified of getting ill because if she was ill, there was no one to look care of, take care of her siblings. And so her daughter later had inherited that fear of you know, health anxiety and had been completely unaware of where it came from. And soon as she became aware of what had happened and how she'd inherited these beliefs. There was massive comfort in that. I don't think she she didn't blame her mother. She was able to understand what had triggered that experience for her mother and almost have a lot more compassion, actually, for her mother's own experience and then her experience as well. And suddenly those core beliefs that she had didn't belong to her anymore. They were somebody else's. And she was able to consider letting them go or challenging them, certainly. Um, and I think for body stuff, that's so true. I think so many women are exposed to that because we all are. We're all under immense pressure to be validated for who, you know, how we look rather than for who we are. And how much we choose to challenge that is obviously it's up to any of us. And how much that impacts any of us is, you know, de- you know depends on who we are. But I like the ability to recognize that the core belief maybe isn't ours and to let it go with some compassion for where it came from. Yeah. 
Yeah, we do a lot of um, geneograms with our clients, which is basically, I don't know if you've worked like this, um, mm-hmm. you draw a family tree, maybe just going back a couple of generations. So just mum and dad and your grandparents. And then next to each member, you write any core characteristics that they had and any significant events. And what you do when you look back from that is you get a lot of context for your own experience. And you also are able to identify patterns. Hmm. And for so many of the people that I work with, they don't understand why they are the way they are. They don't understand um, what's motivating them. um, And they just feel confused a lot of the time by what's going on with them. And drawing out a kind of family tree like that and identifying those patterns can be immensely comforting to people because it's not about blame. It's recognizing there's something systemic there that's been going on for a long time and that by becoming aware of that, we're in a position to change that next generation, mm-hmm. you know, that's that next step down on the tree. That's a great idea. I love having the visual component as well and the physical component of actually drawing it out and looking at it. And so I know you have a book, Trauma Redefined. Yeah. And um, I know you mentioned, and I, I haven't read your book, but I've read a little bit about it. And I know you talk about ways to um, identify unresolved trauma. Yeah. And so for anyone listening who maybe isn't even sure or aware that there's unresolved trauma there, like what are some ways that we can start to become more aware of like, oh, wait, maybe I do have some unresolved trauma. Like what kinds of things tend to show up in people's lives? Well, the first thing that I would say to anybody is that we all have trauma. I think when people consider um, trauma, there's a real misconception about what that is. I think people think about war veterans and natural disasters and big catastrophic events when they think about trauma. And actually, trauma can be much more subtle than that and much more covert than that. It could be growing up in a home that's full of arguments or violence. It could be a big change as a young person moving school, moving home. It could be um, anything. And so many of the clients that we have, when we ask them about trauma, say that they don't have any. And then we find out they were bullied all the way through high school or something like that. And so first of all, it's saying to yourself, okay, I have trauma. So I think the key thing is for us all to recognize our starting point is that we all have trauma. Question to reflect upon is how have I coped with that trauma? Because I think for so many people, it's about do I have the resources to have processed the experiences that I have? Not did I have them. We all had them. Um, and we will continue to have them. This is part of the nature of what it is to be a human being. It's about reflecting on what tools and strategies have you developed as an adult to cope with life when it gets difficult. And for those of us that develop self-harming behaviors and destructive strategies, we're the ones that need to really focus on developing some more nurturing tools when it comes to processing trauma and dealing with trauma. Historically, so many of us were in connection with groups, groups of people. We went to church more. We went to different community meetups more. We spent time meeting up with girlfriends more and um, and just chatting. And when we did that, we processed trauma. We talked about things that were difficult in life with groups of people. And because of how much more fractured we've become as a society and because of how much more isolated we're becoming, we're doing that less and less. And I think that's one of the big reasons that we're struggling because we're spending less time just talking about what it is that's going on for us. 
And my experience, particularly with women, put women in a group, they just start talking. Mm-hmm. Start talking and sharing and identifying and empathizing with one another about their experiences. And quite often, that's a big part of what we need to do to heal. And if our starting point is that we're denying these experiences, that we're shut down, that we're not sharing them, that we're ashamed of them, then there's nowhere to go with that. We're stuck with them. We're holding them in our bodies and we're not moving forward. More than that, we've then developed a really negative, critical voice that's punishing us and telling us a story about ourselves based on how we've dealt with those traumas. And that's where I think we get into really kind of sticky territory because we're living a script um, that we're really invested in because it's supporting this critical voice that we have. And one of the things that I wanted to do in the book was to really explain to people how that works because so many people just aren't aware. I think soon you become aware, you're able to do something about it. But if we don't know what it is that we're trying to fix, then we're often signing up for things, buying things, reaching out for things because we're trying to fix a wound and we just don't know how. And I think, I think you're right in saying we're not even sure what the wound is sometimes, but we want to feel better. Yeah, we just know something's not okay. And because we don't know how to articulate that, we're not, we're not talking about it. And for me, you know what what is wonderful about uh online services now is that we have access to podcasts and ebooks and even instagram channels on my instagram channel i do a q a so we respond to as many questions as we can that are about trauma they're about individual situations and circumstances about a whole host of different things trying to give people tools to unpack what it is that they're going through and it gives them just a bit of education about how to start this journey so you need to seek it out and take a little bit of responsibility you can do that and I think so many people feel really helpless if they can't access those resources because of logistics or finances or whatever Um, but actually there are things out there that you can you can do when I started my recovery journey I didn't have a clinic or somebody to talk to I was like hanging on every word that I read of Brené Brown or Bradshaw, or and I just kept reading that stuff over and over until something started to click, and I realised that I was reading things that resonated with me and that made sense to me. So books were my therapy as a young person, and even now I listen to a lot of podcasts, um, yourself included, by the way, who people that I feel like I can learn from and grow who will continue to challenge me and continue to, you know, enlighten my world when it comes to recovery. Um, and I think everybody can do that. You know, make it your job a little bit for a while. And it, it may feel a bit like a job for a while, but it won't. Things start to shift and you realize you're just nurturing your soul a little bit. I feel like doing that is part of um, that self-love project because when you really start surrounding yourself, I've just got an Audible account. So I've been just diving through books because I'm in the car a lot 
Uh, and it's, I do, I feel like I'm buffering the, the self that I'm creating. Um, yeah. so it's really wonderful just to have that support through something as simple as like a book or a podcast instead of just shutting it off and letting, you know, whatever else in my brain take over. It's like, no, let's just continue to reinforce these things that I'm growing and creating. So I like that you made that point. Find your people. If they're not in your job, if they're not in your friendship circle, if they're not in your family, go find your people. Even if it's somebody who's hosting a podcast that you're never going to meet, you're going to be hearing things and connecting with things that are going to really be illuminating for you. So just don't give up. You know, you will find your tribe out there. And then once you do that, you start manifesting them in your life in reality. And that's when I, you know, that's really magical when that happens. I agree. Well, Emmy, thank you so much for coming on today. Can you, is there, well, two things. Is there anything else that you'd like to broadcast or say to the audience? I always like to just give people a chance to. Just keep on being brave and also just don't, don't give up. I don't, don't lose faith. Faith is the biggest tool you have for healing. So if it's hanging by a thread, then, you know, keep your book on it and, and do what you can to build on that because it's, it's the most powerful tool you have. It's beautiful. I agree. And then where can people find you? I know you're online in a couple of platforms and you've got quite a few things going on. So if anyone wants to find out more about how we work or what we do, um, then my website is emmybanner.com and the clinic site is therecoverclinic.co.uk. You can find us on Instagram and it's there that we talk to other mental health professionals that are spreading spreading a bit of light on the the world of mental health, but where also I share as many tips as I can for recovery. So if you are struggling or if you're just curious, then, you know, reach out and say hi. Sounds wonderful. And I'll put all those uh, links in the show notes. So for anyone who wants to come find you, I'll have that there for them. And uh, thank you so much. I mean, it's been a really delight to speak with you this morning. Yeah, you too. Take care and thank you so much.